Good evening, everyone. I hope you're well. Um, today I'm going to be reading from Georges Bataille's Erotism, Death, and Sensuality. Um, and I'm just going to jump right into chapter two, so I won't be starting from the beginning. I'll read a few chapters. So, chapter two, the link between taboos and death. The contrast between the world of work or reason and that of violence. In the section which follows, whose subject is eroticism at white heat, the blind moment when eroticism attains its ultimate intensity, I shall consider systematically the relationship between those two irreconcilables, irreconcilables already mentioned, taboo and transgression. Man belongs in any case to both of these worlds, and between them willy-nilly his life is torn. The world of work and reason is the basis of human life, but work does not absorb us completely, and if reason gives the orders, our obedience is never unlimited. Man has built up the rational world by his own efforts, but there remains within him an undercurrent of violence. Nature herself is violent, and however reasonable we may grow, we may be mastered anew by a violence no longer that of nature, but that of a rational being, who tries to obey, but who succumbs to stirrings within himself which he cannot bring to heal. There is, in nature, and there subsists in man, a movement which always exceeds the bounds, that can never be anything but partially reduced to order. We are generally unable to grasp it. Indeed, it is by definition that which can never be grasped, but we are conscious of being in its power, the universe that bears us along answers no purpose that reason defines, and if we try to make it answer to God, all we are doing is associating irrationally the infinite excess in the presence of which our reason exists with our reason itself. But through the excess in him that God, whom he should like to shape into an intelligible concept, never ceases, exceeding this concept, to exceed the limits of reason, in the domain of our life, excess manifests itself insofar as violence wins over reason. Work demands the sort of conduct where effort is in a constant ratio with productive efficiency. It demands rational behavior where the wild impulses worked out on feast days and usually in games are frowned upon. If we were unable to repress these impulses, we should not be able to work, but work introduces the very reason for repressing them. These impulses confer an immediate satisfaction on those who yield to them. Work, on the other hand, promises to those who overcome them a reward later on whose value cannot be disputed except from the point of view of the present moment. From the earliest times, work has produced a relaxation of tension, thanks to which men cease to respond to the immediate urge impelled by the violence of desire. No doubt it is arbitrary always to contrast the detachment fundamental to work with tumultuous urges whose necessity is not constant. Once begun, however, work does make it impossible to respond to these immediate solicitations, which could make us indifferent to the promised desirable results. Most of the time, work is the concern of men acting collectively, and during the time reserved for work, the collective has to oppose those contagious impulses to excess, in which nothing is left but the immediate surrender to excess, to violence, that is. Hence, the human collective, partly dedicated to work, is defined by taboos, without which it would not have become the world of work that it essentially is. The main function of all taboos is to combat violence. What prevents us from seeing this decisive articulation of human life in its simplicity is the capricious way these taboos are promulgated. They have often had a superficially insignificant air. The significance of taboos, if we take them as a whole, particularly if we take in con into consideration those which we do not fail religiously to observe, is nonetheless reducible to a simple element. I will formulate this without demonstrating the truth of it immediately, that I will do systematically later, and my generalization will be seen to be a sound one. Violence is what the world of work excludes with its taboos. In my field of inquiry, this implies at the same time sexual reproduction and death. Only later on shall I be able to establish the profound unity of these apparent opposites, birth and death, 
However, even at this stage, their external connections stand revealed in the universe of sadism, there for anyone who thinks about eroticism to ponder on. Desaad, or his ideas, generally horrifies even those who, aff who affect to admire him and have not realized through their own experience this tormenting fact. The urge towards love, pushed to its limit, is an urge toward death. This link ought not to sound paradoxical. The excess from which reproduction proceeds and the excess we call death can each only be understood with the help of the other. But it is clear from the outset that the two primary taboos affect, firstly, death, and secondly, sexual functions. Prehistoric evidence of taboos connected with death. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not perform the carnal act except in wedlock. Such are the two fundamental commandments found in the Bible, and we still observe them. The first of these prohibitions is the consequence of the human attitude towards the dead. Let me return to the earliest days of our species, when our destiny was at stake. Even before man presented the appearance that he does today, Neanderthal man, whom historians called Homo Faber, was making various stone instruments, often very elaborately, with the aid of which he hewed stone or wood. This kind of man, living a hundred thousand years before ourselves, was already like us, but still more like the anthropoid. Although he held himself erect like us, his legs were still a little bent. When he walked, he leaned more on the ball of the foot than on the outer edge. His neck was not as flexible as ours, although certain men have conserved certain of his characteristics. He had a low forehead and a jutting brow. We only know the bones of this rudimentary man. We cannot know the exact appearance of his face, not even if his expression was already a human one. All we know is that he worked and cut himself away from violence. If we look at his life as a whole, he remained inside the realm of violence. We have not yet entirely abandoned it ourselves, but he escaped its power to some extent. He worked. We have the evidence of his technical skill left by numerous and various stone tools. This skill was remarkable enough in that, if he had not given it his considered attention, going back on and perfecting his first idea, he could not have achieved results that were constant and in the long run greatly improved. His tools are in any case not the only proof of an incipient opposition to violence. The burial places left by Neanderthal man bear witness to this also. Besides work, death was recognized by this man as terrifying and overwhelming and indeed as supernatural. Prehistory assigns Neanderthal man to the Middle Paleolithic era, as early as Lower Paleolithic. Apparently some hundreds of thousands of years before, fairly similar human beings existed who left traces of their work just as Neanderthal man did. The heaps of bones of these earlier men that have been found um, encourage us to think that death had begun to disturb them, since they paid some attention to skulls at least. But burial of the dead, still a religious practice for humanity at the present time, appears toward the end of the Middle Paleolithic, a little while before the disappearance of Neanderthal man and the arrival of a man exactly like ourselves, whom prehistorians, keeping the same Homo Faber for the earlier type, call Homo sapiens. The custom of burial is the sign of a taboo similar to ours concerning the, death, the dead and death. In a vague form, at least, the taboo must have arisen before this custom. We can even admit that, in one sense, so imperceptibly that no proof could have remained, and doubtless unnoticed by those who lived at the time, the birth of this taboo coincided with the beginnings of work. The essential difference is that between a man's dead body and other objects such as stones. Today, the perception of this difference is still characteristic of a human being as opposed to an animal. What we call death is in the first place the consciousness we have of it. We perceive the transition from the living state to the corpse, that is, to the tormenting object that the corpse of one man is for another. For each man who regards it with awe, the corpse is the image of his own destiny. It bears witness to a violence which destroys not one man alone, but all men in the end. The taboo which lays hold on the others at the sight of a corpse is the distance they put between themselves and violence, by which they cut themselves off from violence. The picture of violence, which we must attribute to primitive man in particular, must necessarily be understood as opposed to the rhythm of work regulated by rational factors. Levi Brule's mistake um, has long been recognized. He denied primitive man a rational mode of thought and conceded him only the uncertain and indistinct images that result from participation. 
work is obviously no less ancient than man himself, and though work is not always foreign to animals, human work as distinct from animal work is never foreign to reason. It supposes that a fundamental identity is accepted between itself and the wrought object, and it supposes the difference, resulting from the work, between its substance and the developed tool. Similarly, it implies awareness of the use of the tool, of the chain of cause and effect in which it is about to become involved. The laws which govern the acquired skills which give rise to tools or which are served by them are laws of reason from the outset. These laws regulate the changes which work conceives and effects. No doubt, a primitive man could not have made them explicit. His language made him aware of the objects it named for him, but was inadequate to deal with the naming process itself. A workman today, the best part of the time, would not be in a position to formulate them. Nevertheless, he observes them faithfully. Primitive man, as Levi Brule describes him, may have thought irrationally some of the time that a thing simultaneously is and is not, or that it can be what it is and something else at the same time. Reason did not dominate his entire thinking, but it did when it was a question of work so much so that a primitive man could imagine, without formulating it, a world of work or reason to which another world of violence was opposed. Certainly, death is like disorder in that it differs from the orderly arrangements of work. Primitive man may have thought that the ordering of work belonged to him, while the disorder of death was beyond him, making nonsense of his efforts. The movement of work, the operations of reason, were of use to him, while disorder, the movement of violence, brought ruin, on the very creature whom useful works serve. Man, identifying himself with work which reduced everything to order, thus cut himself off from violence which tended in the opposite direction. The horror of the corpse as a symbol of violence and as a threat of the contagiousness of violence. Violence and, violence and death signifying violence have a double meaning. On the one hand, the horror of death drives us off, for we prefer life. On the other, an element at once solemn and terrifying fascinates us and disturbs us profoundly. I shall return to this ambiguity. I can only point out in the first place the essential aspect of recoil in the face of violence, which is expressed by taboos associated with death. A man's dead body must always have been a source of interest to those whose companion he was while he lived and we must believe that as a victim of violence, those nearest to him were careful to preserve him from further violence. Burial, no doubt, signified from the earliest times, as far as those who buried the body were concerned, their wish to save the dead from the veracity of animals. But even if that wish had been the determining factor in the inauguration of this custom, we cannot say that it was the most important. Awe of the dead, in all likelihood, predominated for a long time over the sentiments which a milder civilization developed. Death was a sign of violence brought into a world which it could destroy. Although motionless, the dead man had a part in the violence which had struck him down. Anything which came too near him was threatened by the destruction which had brought him low. Death presented such a contrast between an unfamiliar region... <sighs> in the everyday world that the only mode of thought in tune with it was bound to conflict with the mode of thought governed by work. Symbolical or mythical thought, erroneously labeled primitive by Levi Brule, is the only kind appropriate to violence whose essence is to break the bounds of rational thought implicit in work. According to this way of thinking, the violence, which by striking at the dead man dislocates the ordered course of things, does not cease to be dangerous once the victim is dead. It constitutes a supernatural peril which can be caught from the dead body. Death is a danger for those left behind. If they have to bury the corpse, it is less in order to keep it safe than to keep themselves safe from its contagion. Often the idea of contagion is interconnected with the body's decomposition, where formidable aggressive forces are seen at work. The corpse will rot. This biological disorder, like the newly dead body, a symbol of destiny, is threatening in itself. We no longer believe in contagious magic, but which of us could be sure of not quailing at the sight of a dead body crawling with maggots? Ancient peoples took the drying up of the bones to be the proof that the threat of violence arising at the time of death had passed over. 
More often than not, the dead man himself, held in the clutch of violence as the survivors see it, is part and parcel of his own disorder, and his whitened bones are what at last betoken the pacification of his spirit. The Taboo on Murder The taboo relating to the corpse does not always appear intelligible. In Totem and Taboo, Freud, because of his superficial knowledge of ethnographical data, nowadays much less vague, thought that the taboo generally countered the desire to touch. The desire to touch the dead was doubtless no greater in former times than it is today. The taboo does not necessarily anticipate the desire. In the presence of a corpse, horror is immediate and inevitable and practically impossible to resist. The violence attendant attendant upon a man's death is only likely to tempt men in one direction. It may tend to be embodied in us against another living person. The desire to kill may take hold of us. The taboo on murder is a special aspect of the universal taboo on violence. In the eyes of primitive man, violence is always the cause of death. It may have acted through magical means, but someone is always responsible, someone is always a murderer. The two aspects of the taboo are interrelated. We must run away from death and hide from the forces that have been unleashed. Other forces, like those which have over overpowered the dead man and are temporarily in possession of him, must not be loosed in ourselves. As a rule, the community brought into being by work considers itself essentially apart from the violence implied by the death of one of its members. Faced by such a death, the body politic feels that a taboo is in force. But that is only true for the members of the community. Within it, the taboo has full force. Without, where strangers are concerned, the taboo is still felt, but it can be violated. The community is made up of those whom the common effort unites. Cut off from violence, by work, during the hours devoted to work. Outside this given time, outside its own limits, the community can revert to violence. It can resort to murder in war against another community. In given circumstances, during a given time, the murder of members of a given tribe is permissible, necessary even. Yet the wildest hecatombs, in spite of the irresponsibility of their instigators, never entirely remove the malediction falling on murder. The Bible commands, thou shalt not kill, and this sometimes makes us smile, but we deceive ourselves in regarding the Bible as unimportant. Once the obstacle is overthrown, what outlasts the transgression is a flouted taboo. The bloodiest of murders cannot ignore the curse upon him, for the curse is the condition of his achievement. Transgression piled upon transgression will never abolish the taboo. Just as though the taboo were never anything but the means of cursing gloriously whatever it forbids. In the foregoing proposition, there is a basic truth. Taboos founded on terror are not only there to be obeyed. There is always another side to the matter. It is always a temptation to knock down a barrier. The forbidden action takes us on a significant, takes on a significance it lacks, before fear widens the gap between us and it and invests it with an aura of excitement. There is nothing, writes de Sade, that can be, that can set bounds to licentiousness. The best way of enlarging and multiplying one's desires is to try to limit them. Nothing can set bounds to licentiousness, or rather, generally speaking, there is nothing that can conquer violence. Chapter 3, Taboos Related to Reproduction. The taboo universally founded in universally found in man as opposed to the sexual freedom of animals. Later on, I shall return to the complementary relationship uniting taboos which reject violence with acts of transgression which set it free. These counterbalanced urges have a kind of unity. From considering the significance of a barrier at the moment of its being overturned, I already have gone on to introduce a group of taboos parallel with those called into existence by death. The taboos centered on sexuality ha uh, have now to be considered. We have very old traces of customs concerned with death. Prehistoric evidence on sexuality is more recent. What is more, we can draw no conclusions from them. There are middle Paleolithic burial sites, but evidence of the sexual activity of the first men goes no further back than Upper Paleolithic. 
art, representation, does not appear with the Neanderthal man, but begins with Homo sapiens, and such images of himself as he has left are rare anyway. These images are generally ephphalic. Hence, we know that sexual activity, like death, was early on a subject of interest to man, but we cannot deduce any clear indications from such vague data as we can, as we can with death. Ithephalic pictures obviously show a relative freedom. Nevertheless, they cannot prove that those who traced them believed in unlimited freedom in this field. All we can say is that, as opposed to work, sexual activity is a form of violence, that as a spontaneous impulse, it can interfere with work. A community committed to work cannot afford to be at its mercy during working hours, so to speak. We would then be justified in thinking that, from the first, sexual liberty must have received some check, which we are bound to call a taboo, without being able to say anything about the cases in which it applies. At the most, we can assume that initially the time set aside for work determined the limit. The only real reason we have for thinking that a taboo of this sort must be very old indeed is that at all times, as in all places, as far as our knowledge goes, man is defined by having his sexual behavior subject to rules and precise restrictions. Man is an animal who stands abashed in front of death or sexual union. He may be more or less abashed, but in either case his reaction differs from that of other animals. These restrictions vary greatly according to time and place. All peoples do not feel the necessity to hide the sexual organs in the same way, but they do generally conceal from the sight the male organ in erection, and usually a man and a woman seek privacy to accomplish the sexual act. In Western civilizations, nakedness has become the object of a fairly general and weighty taboo, but our contemporary experience calls into question an assumption that once appeared fundamental. The experience we have of changes that are possible does not show the taboos as arbitrary, though, on the contrary, it proves their deep significance in spite of superficial changes of emphasis on aspects unimportant in themselves. We know now how mutable are the specific patterns which are read into the amorphous prohibition. This prohibition simply imposes the necessity for submitting sexual activity to generally accepted restrictions but it gives us the certainty that there is a fundamental rule which demands that we submit, and in common, to restrictions of one sort or another. The taboo within us against sexual liberty is general and universal. The particular prohibitions are variable aspects of it. I'm astonished to be the first person to state this so unequivocally. It is ridiculous to isolate a specific taboo, such as the one on incest, just one aspect of the general taboo, and look for its explanation outside its universal basis, namely the amorphous and universal prohibitions bearing on sexuality. Roger Kailawa, however, is an exception to this tendency. He writes, Problems on which a great deal of ink have, has been used up, like the prohibition on incest, can only be given a fair solution if they are considered as special cases of a system that embraces all religious taboos in a given society. As I see it, the beginning of Kailua's statement is perfect, but when he says a given society, he is still referring to a special case, a given aspect. It is high time we gave our attention to all religious taboos in all ages and in all climates. Kailua's remark forces me to state here and now that this amorphous and universal taboo is constant. Its shape and its objects do change, but whether it is a question of sexuality or death, violence, terrifying yet fascinating, is what it is leveled at. The Taboo on Incest The special case of the taboo on incest is the one that commands most attention, even as far as replacing on a general view sexual taboos proper. Everyone knows that a taboo on sexuality does exist, amorphous and indefinable. All mankind observes it. But this observance is so varied according to the time and the place that no one has found a formula for it that would allow it to be generally discussed. The taboo on incest, no less universal, is translated into well-defined customs, always pretty rigorously formulated, and a single unambiguous word gives a general definition of it. That's why incest has been the subject of numerous studies, while the general taboo, of which it is only a special case and from which springs an inchoate collection of prohibitions, has no place in the minds of people whose business it is to study human behavior. 
so true it is that human intelligence is moved to consider what is simple and easily defined to the exclusion of matters that are vague, difficult to grasp, and variable. Hence, the taboo on sex has so far evaded the curiosity of scientists, while the various forms of incest, no less clearly defined than those of animal species, offered them what they liked, puzzles to solve on which their ingenuity could be exerted. In archaic societies, classifying persons according to their blood relationships and determining what marriages are forbidden sometimes becomes quite a science. The great merit of Claude Levi Strauss is that he found in the endless meanderings of archaic family structures the origin of peculiarities that cannot derive only from the vague fundamental taboo that made men in general observe laws opposed to animal freedom. In the first place, the dispositions concerning incest answered the need to bind with rules of violence that, if it had been allowed a free reign, might have disturbed the order to which the community desired to submit itself. But independently of this basic requirement, fair laws were necessary for the distribution of the women among the men. Certain dispositions, strained but precise, are understandable if one takes into consideration the desirability of an ordered distribution. The taboo made it necessary that a rule of some kind should be enforced, but the particular rules decided upon could take secondary matters into consideration which had nothing to do with secular violence and its menace to reason and order. If Levi Strauss had not shown the origins of a certain aspect of marriage conventions, there would have been no reason not to seek the significance of the taboo on incest there, but that aspect simply met the need to find an answer to the problem of sharing out the available will women. If we insist on reading a significance into the general movement of incest which forbids physical union between close relations, we ought first to consider the strong feeling which has persisted. This feeling is not a fundamental one, but neither were the circumstances which determined the forms of the taboo. It seems natural at first glance to look upon apparently ancient customs for a cause, but once this research has gone a fair distance, the opposite seems true. The cause we have sought out did not constitute a curtailment of freedom in principle. It could only use that principle for particular ends. We must refer the special case to the whole body of religious tattoos, taboos <laughs> known to us and to which we are still subject. Is there anything more firmly rooted in us than the horror of incest? With this also, I associate respect for the dead, but I shall not show until later on how all taboos are basically interrelated. We look on physical union with the mother or father or with a brother or sister as inhuman. The persons with whom we may not have sexual relations are variously defined. Yet without the rule ever having been formulated, we may not associate sexually with those who were living in the family home when we were born. This limiting factor would be clearer, no doubt, if other variable taboos, arbitrary seeming to those not subject to them, were not involved. At the center, a fairly simple and constant nucleus, surrounded by an arbitrary and variable complex, characterizes this fundamental taboo. Nearly everywhere can be found the solid core and simultaneously the surrounding fluidity and mobility. This mobility obscures the significance of the nucleus. The nucleus is not intangible in itself, but considering it, we gain a more acute insight into the primal horror whose repercussions are sometimes due to chance and sometimes coincident with social convenience. It is always at bottom a matter of two incompatibles, the realm of calm and rational behavior and the violence of the sexual impulse. With the passing of the ages, could the rules which spring from this dichotomy have been defined except in variable and arbitrary forms? Menstruation and loss of blood at childbirth. No less than incest, certain other taboos seem to us to spring from the general horror of violence. For instance, the taboos associated with menstruation and the loss of blood at childbirth. These discharges are thought of as manifestations of internal violence. Blood in itself is a symbol of violence. The menstrual discharge is further associated with sexual activity and the accompanying suggestion of degradation. Degradation is one of the effects of violence. Childbearing cannot be dissociated from this complex of feelings. It is, is it not outside? Is it not itself a rending process, something excessive and outside the orderly course of permitted activity? 
Does it not imply the denial of the established order, a denial, a denial without which there could be no transition from nothingness to being or from being to nothingness? There may well be something gratuitous about these assessments. Moreover, the taboos seem almost trivial to us, even if we do feel disgust at such unclean processes. They have nothing to do with the firm nu nucleus of the taboo. They are subsidiary aspects to be reckoned among the mutable elements surrounding that ill-defined central area. Chapter 4. Affinities Between Reproduction and Death Death, Corruption, and the Renewal of Life It is clear from the start that taboos appeared in response to the necessity of banishing violence from the course of everyday life. I could not give a definition of violence straight away, nor do I think it necessary to do so. The unity of meaning of these taboos should finally be clear from studies of their various aspects. We come up against one difficulty at the start. The taboos I regard as fundamental affect two radically different fields. Death and reproduction are as diametrically opposed as negation and affirmation. Death is really the opposite process to the process ending in birth, yet these opposite processes can be reconciled. The death of the one being is correlated with the birth of the other, heralding it and making it possible. Life is always a pr product of the decomposition of life. Life first pays its tribute to death which disappears, then to corruption following on death and bringing back into the cycle of change the matter necessary for the ceaseless arrival of new beings into the world. Yet life is nonetheless a negation of death. It condemns it and shuts it out. This reaction is strongest in man, and horror at death is linked not only with the annihilation of the individual, but also with the decay that sends the dead flesh back to the general ferment of life. Indeed, the deep respect for the solemn image of death found in idealistic civilization alone comes out in radical opposition. Spontaneous physical revulsion keeps alive, in some indirect fashion at least, the consciousness that the terrifying face of death, its stinking putrefaction, are to be identified with the sickening primary condition of life. For primitive people, the moment of greatest anguish is the phase of decomposition. When the bones are bare and white, they are not intolerable, as the putrefying flesh is, food for worms. In some obscure way, the survivors perceive in the horror aroused by corruption a rancor and a hatred projected towards them by the dead man, which it is the function of the rites of mourning to appease. But afterwards, they feel that the whitening bones bear witness to that appeasement. The bones are object, objects of reverence to them and draw the first veil of decency and solemnity over death and make it bearable. It is painful still, but free of the virulent activity of corruption. These white bones do not leave the survivors a prey to the slimy menace of disgust. They put an end to the close, close connections between decomposition, the source of an abundant surge of life, and death. But in an age more in touch with the earliest human reactions than ours, this connection appeared so necessary that even Aristotle said that certain creatures brought into being spontaneously, as he thought, in earth or water, were born of corruption. The generative power of corruption is a naive belief responding to the mingled horror and fascination aroused in us by decay. This belief is behind a belief we once held about nature as something wicked and shameful. Decay summed up the world we spring from and return to, and horror and shame were attached both to our birth and to our death. That nauseous, rank, and heaving matter, frightful to look upon, a ferment of life teeming with worms, grubs, and eggs, is at the bottom of the decisive reactions we call nausea, disgust, or repugnance. Beyond the annihilation to come which will fall with all its weight on the being I now am, which still waits to be called into existence, existence which can even be said to be about to exist rather than to exist, as if I did not exist here and now, but in the future in store for me, though that is not what I am now, death will proclaim my return to seething life. Hence, I can anticipate and live in expectation of that multiple putrescence that anticipates its sickening triumph in my person.
nausea in its general field. When somebody dies, we, the survivors, expecting the life of that man now motionless beside us to go on, find that our expectation has suddenly come to nothing at all. A dead body cannot be called nothing at all, but that object, that corpse, is stamped straight off with the sign nothing at all. For us survivors, the corpse and its threat of imminent decay is no answer to any expectation like the one we nourished, while that now prostrate man was still alive. It is the answer to a fear. This object, then, is less than nothing and worse than nothing. It is entirely in keeping that fear. The basis of disgust is not simulated by a real danger. The threat in question cannot be justified objectively. There's no reason to look at a man's corpse otherwise than at an animal's, at game that has been killed, for instance. The terrified recoiling at the sight of advanced decay is not of itself inevitable. Along with this sort of reaction, we have a whole range of artificial behavior. The horror we feel at the thought of a corpse is akin to the feeling we have at human excreta. What makes this association more compelling is our similar disgust at aspects of sensuality we call obscene. The sexual channels are also the body's sewers. We think of them as shameful and connect the anal orifice with them. St. Augustine was at pains to insist on the obscenity of the organs and dysfunction of reproduction. Inter, uh, something in Latin, interfeces et urinam nascimur, he said. We are born between feces and urine. <laughs> our, our fecal products are not subject to a taboo formulated by meticulous social regulations like those relating to dead bodies or to menstruation. But generally speaking, and though the relationship defies clear definition, there do exist unmistakable links between excreta, decay, and sexuality. It may look as though physical circumstances imposed from without are chiefly operative in marking out this area of sensibility. But it also has its subjective aspect. The feeling of nausea varies with the individual, and its material source is now one thing and now another. After the living man, the dead body is nothing at all. Similarly, nothing tangible or objective brings on our feeling of nausea. What we experience is a kind of void, a, a sinking sensation. We cannot easily discuss these things which in themselves are nothing at all. Yet they do make their presence felt, and often they force themselves on the senses in a way that inert objects perceived objectively do not. How could anyone assert that that stinking mass is nothing at all? But our protest, if we make one, implies our humiliation and our refusal to see. We imagine that it is the stink of excrement that makes us feel sick. But would it stink if we had not thought it was disgusting in the first place? We do not take long to forget what trouble we go to pass on to our children the aversions that make us what we are, which make us human beings to begin with. Our children do not spontaneously have our reactions. They may not like a certain food and they may refuse it, but we have to teach them by pantomime or failing that, by violence, that curious aberration called disgust, powerful enough to make us feel faint, a contagion passed down to us from the earliest men through countless generations of scolded children. Our mistake is to take these teachings lightly. For thousands of years, we have been handing them down to our children, but they used to have a different form. The realm of disgust and nausea is broadly the result of these teachings. The, prodigali the prodigality of life and our fear of it. After reading this, we may feel a void opening within us. What I have been saying refers to this void and nothing else. But the void opens at a specific point. Death, for instance, may open it. The corpse into which death infuses absence, the putrefaction associated with this absence, I can link my revulsion at the decay, my imagination suggests it, not my memory, so profoundly as it is a forbidden object for me, with the feelings that obscenity arouse in me. I can tell myself that repugnance and horror are the mainsprings of my desire, that such desire is only aroused as long as its object causes a chasm no less deep than the death no, bleh, is only aroused as long as its object causes a chasm no less deep than death to yawn within me, and that this desire originates in its opposite, horror. From the outset, reflections like these go beyond all reasonableness. 
It takes an iron nerve to perceive the connection between the promise of life implicit in eroticism and the sensuous aspect of death. Mankind conspires to ignore the fact that death is also the youth of things. Blindfolded, we, re we refuse to see that only death guarantees the fresh upsurging without which life would be blind. We refuse to see that life is the trap set for the balanced order, that life is nothing but instability and disequilibrium. Life is a swelling tumult continuously on the verge of explosion, but since the incessant explosion constantly exhausts its resources, it can only proceed under one condition, that beings given life whose explosive force is exhausted shall make room for fresh beings coming into the cycle with renewed vigor. A more extravagant procedure cannot be imagined. In one way life is possible, it could easily be maintained, without this colossal waste, this squandering annihilation at which imagination boggles. Compared with that of the infusoria, the mammalian organism is a gulf that swallows vast quantities of energy. This energy is not entirely wasted if it allows other developments to take place, but we must consider the devilish cycle from start to finish. The growth of vegetable life implies the continuous piling up of dissociated substances corrupted by death. Herbivores, um, herbivorous creatures swallow vegetable matter by the heap before they themselves are eaten, victims of the carnivores urged to devour. Finally, nothing is left but this fierce beast of prey or his remains, in their turn the prey of hyenas and worms. There is one way of considering this process in harmony with its nature. The more extravagant are the means of engendering life. The more costly is the production of new organisms, the more successful the operation is. The wish to produce at cut prices is inhuman. Is human. Humanity keeps to the narrow capitalist principle, that of the company director, that of the private individual who sells in order to rake in the accumulated credits in the long run. For raked in somehow they always are. On a comprehensive view, human life strives towards prodigality to the point of anguish, to the point where the anguish becomes unbearable. The rest is mere moralizing chatter. How can this escape us if we look at it dispassionately? Everything proclaims it. A febrile unrest within us asks death to wreak its havoc at our expense. We go halfway to meet these manifold trials, these false starts, this squandering of living strength in the transition from aging beings to other younger ones. At bottom, we actually want the impossible situation it all leads to, the isolation, the threat of pain, the horror of annihilation. But for the sensation of nausea bound up with it, so horrible that often in silent panic, we regard the whole thing as impossible, we should not be satisfied. But our judgments are formed under the influence of recurring disappointments and the obstinate expectation of a calm which goes hand in hand with that desire. Our capacity to make ourselves understood is in direct ratio with the blindness we cling to. For at the crest of the convulsion, which gives us shape, the naive stubbornness that hopes that it will cease can only increase the torment, and this allows life, wholly committed to this gratuitous pattern, to add the luxury of a beloved torment to fatality. For if man is condemned to be a luxury in himself, what is one to say of the luxury that is anguish? Man's no to nature. When all is said and done, human reactions are what speed up the process. Anguish speeds it up and makes it more keenly felt at the same time. In general, man's attitude is one of refusal. Man has leant over backwards, uh, in order not to be carried away by the process, but all he manages to do by this is to hurry it along at an even dizzier speed. If we view the primary taboos as the refusal laid down by the individual to cooperate with nature regarded as a squandering of living energy and an orgy of annihilation, we can no longer differentiate between death and sexuality. Sexuality and death are simply the culminating points of the holiday. Nature celebrates, with the inexhaustible multitude of living beings, both of them signifying the boundless wastage of nature's resources, as opposed to the urge to live on characteristic of every living creature. 
In the long or short run, reproduction demands the death of the parents who produce their young only to give fuller, fuller reign to the forces of annihilation, just as the death of a generation demands that a new generation be born. In the parallels perceived by the human mind between putrefaction and the various aspects of sexual activity, the feelings of revulsion which set us against both end up end by mingling. The taboos embodying a single dual purpose reaction may have taken shape at one one at a time, and one can even imagine a long time elapsing between the taboo connected with death and the one connected with reproduction. Often the most perfect things take shape hesitatingly through successive modifications. But we perceive their unity nonetheless. We feel we are dealing with an indivisible complex, just as if man had once and for all realized how impossible it is for nature, as a given force, to exact from the beings that she brings forth their participation in the destructive and implacable frenzy that animates her. Nature demands their surrender, or rather she asks them to go crashing headlong to their own ruin. Humanity became possible at the instant when, seized by insurmountable dizziness, man tried to answer no. Man tried? In fact, men have never definitively said no to violence, to the excessive urges in question. In their weaker moments, they have resisted nature's current, but this is a momentary suspension and not a final standstill. We must now examine the transgressions that lie beyond the taboos. Chapter 5. Transgression the transgression does, not, does not deny the taboo, but transcends it and completes it. It is not only the great variety of their subjects, but also a certain illogicality that makes it difficult to discuss taboos. Two diametrically opposed views are always possible on any subject. There exists no, no prohibition that cannot be transgressed. Often the transgression is permitted, often it is even prescribed. We feel like laughing when we consider the solemn commandment, Thou shalt not kill, followed by a blessing on armies and the te duum of the apotheosis. No beating about the bush, murder is connived at immediately, after being banned. The violence of war certainly betrays the God of the New Tes Testament, but it does not oppose the God of armies of the Old Testament in the same way. If the prohibition were a reasonable one, it would mean that wars would be for forbidden, and we should be confronted with a choice, to ban war and to do everything possible to abolish military assassination, or else to fight and accept the law as hypocritical. But the taboos on which the world of reason is founded are not rational for all that. To begin with, a calm opposite to violence would not suffice to draw a clear line between the two worlds. If the opposition did not itself draw upon violence in some way, if some violent negative emotion did not make violence horrible for everyone, Reason alone could not define those shifting limits authoritatively enough. Only unreasoning dread and terror could survive in the teeth of the forces let loose. This is the nature of the taboo which makes a world of calm reason possible, but is itself basically a shudder appealing not to reason but to feeling, just as violence is. Human violence is the result not of a cold calculation but of emotional states, anger, fear, or desire. We have to take into consideration the irrational nature of taboos if we want to understand the indifference to logic they constantly display. In the sphere of irrational behavior we are reviewing, we have to say, sometimes an intangible taboo is violated, but that does not mean to say that it has ceased to be intangible. We can even go as far as the absurd proposition, the taboo is there in order to be violated. This proposition is not the wager it looks like at first, but an accurate statement of an inevitable connection between conflicting emotions. When a negative emotion has the upper hand, we must obey the taboo. When a positive emotion is in the ascendant, we violate it. Such a violation will not deny or suppress the contrary emotion, but justify it and arouse it. We should not be frightened of violence in the same way if we did not know or at least obscurely sense that it could lead us to worse things. The statement, the taboo is there to be violated, ought to make sense of the fact that the taboo on murder, universal though it may be, nowhere opposes war. I'm even convinced that without the prohibition, war would be impossible and inconceivable. Animals recognizing no taboos 
have never progressed from the fights they take part in to the organized undertaking of war. War, in a way, boils down to the collective organization of aggressive urges. Like work, it is organized by the community. Like work, it has a purpose. It is the answer to the considered intention of those who wage it. We cannot say, therefore, that war and violence are in conflict, but war is organized violence. The transgression of the taboo is not animal violence. It is violence still, used by a creature capable of reason, putting his knowledge to the service of violence for the time being. At the very least, the taboo is the threshold beyond which murder is possible, and for the community, war comes about when the threshold is crossed. If transgression proper, as opposed to ignorance of the taboo, did not have this limited character, it would be a return to violence, to animal violence. But nothing of the kind is so. Organized transgression together with the taboo makes social life what it is. The frequency and the regularity of transgressions do not affect the intangible stability of the prohibition, since they are its expected complement. Just as the diastolic movement completes a systolic one, or just as explosion follows upon compression. The compression is not subservient to the explosion, far from it. It gives it increased force. This looks like a new idea, though it is founded on immemorial experience. But it runs counter to the world of speech from which science is derived, and that is why it is found stated only recently. Marcel Mauss, perhaps the most remarkable interpreter of the history of religion, was conscious of it and formulated it in his oral teaching, but his printed work brings it out only in a small number of significant sentences. Only Roger Kailoua, following Mauss's teaching and advice, has fully examined this aspect of transgression in his Theory of Celebrations. Transgression Without Limits Often the transgression of a taboo is no less subject to rules than the taboo itself. No liberty here. At such and such a time, and up to a certain point, this is permissible. That is what the transgression concedes. But once a limited license has been allowed, unlimited urges towards violence may break forth. The barriers are not merely raised, for it may even be necessary at the moment of transgression to assert their solid solidity. Concern over a rule is sometimes at its most acute when that rule is being broken, for it is harder to limit a disturbance already begun. However, in, ex in exceptional cases, unlimited transgression is conceivable. Let me give you a noteworthy instance. It can happen that violence overreaches the bounds of the taboo in some way. It seems, it may seem, that once the law has become powerless, there is nothing to keep violence firmly within bounds, and, um, within bounds in the future. Basically, death contravenes the taboo against the violence which is supposedly its cause. Most frequently, the subsequent sense of rupture brings in its wake a minor disturbance which funeral rites and festivities, with their ordered ritual, setting bounds to disorderly urges, are able to absorb. But if death prevails over a sovereign whose exalted position might seem to be a guarantee against it, that sense of rupture gets the upper hand and disorder knows no bounds. Kelois has described the behavior of certain oceanic peoples. When social and natural life, he says, are summed up in the sacred person of a king, the hour of his death determines the critical instant and looses ritual license. This license corresponds closely with the importance of the catastrophe. The sacrilege has a social nature. It is committed at the expense of the kingship, the hierarchy, and the established powers. No hint of resistance is ever offered to the frenzy of the people. This is considered as necessary as obedience to the dead man was. In the Sandwich Islands, the people, on learning of the king's death, commit all the acts looked on as criminal in ordinary times. They set buildings on fire, they loot and they murder, while women are expected to prostitute themselves publicly. In the Fiji Islands, the consequences are even more clearly defined. The death of the chief gives the signal for pillage, subject tribes invade the capital and indulge in every form of brig brigandage and depredation. Yet these transgressions still constitute a sacrilege. They break the rules that were in force yesterday and which will be restored tomorrow, sacred and inviolable. They appear, in fact, as major acts of sacrilege. 
it is noteworthy that the disorder takes place during the critical period of decay and degradation represented by death. During the time when it's active and contagious, virulence is in its full swing. It ends when all the rotting flesh has finally disappeared from the royal corpse, when nothing is left of the remains but a hard, clean, incorruptible skeleton. The mechanism of transgression is manifest when violence is let loose in this way. Man intended to curb nature when he set up taboos in opposition, and indeed he thought he had succeeded. When he confined the violent urges of his own nature within bounds, he thought he had done the same for the violence in the world outside himself. But when he saw how ineffectual was the barrier he had, so he had set sought to set up against violence, the rules he had meant to observe himself lost their significance. His suppressed urges were unleashed. Thenceforth he killed without hesitation, ceased to control his sexual exuberance, and feared no longer to perform publicly and unrestrainedly acts which hitherto he had only performed in private. As long as the king's body was given over to an act of decomposition, the whole of society was under the sway of violence. The barrier that had not saved the king from the ravages of death could not withstand the excesses that constantly endanger the social order. No well-defined rules order these major acts of sacrilege given free reign by the death of the king, but when nothing remains of the dead man but the clean bones, this chaotic reign of license comes to an end. Even in this extreme case, transgression has nothing to do with the primal liberty of animal life. It opens the door into what lies beyond the limits usually observed, but it maintains these limits just the same. Transgression is complementary to the profane world, exceeding its limits but not destroying it. Human society is not only a world of work. Simultaneously or successively, it is made up of the profane and the sacred, its two complementary forms. The profane world is the world of taboos. The sacred world depends on limited acts of transgression. It is the world of celebrations, sovereign rulers, and God. This approach is a difficult one, in that sacred simultaneously has two contradictory meanings. Whatever is the subject of a prohibition is basically sacred. The taboo gives a negative definition of the sacred object and inspires us with awe on the religious plane. Carried to extremes, that, become, that, that feeling becomes one of devotion and adoration. The gods who incarnate this sacred essence put fear into the hearts of those who reverence them. Yet men do reverence them nonetheless. Men are swayed by two simultaneous emotions. They are driven away by terror and drawn by an awed fascination. Taboo and transgression reflect these two contradictory urges. The taboo would forbid the transgression, but the fascination compels it. Taboos and the divine are opposed to each other in one sense only, for the sacred aspect of the taboo is what draws men towards it and transfigures the original interdiction. This often intertwined themes of, mytholo of mythology spring from these factors. The only clear and comprehensible distinction between these two aspects of the taboo is an economic one. Taboos are there to make work possible. Work is productive. During the profane period allotted to work, consumption is reduced to the minimum consistent with continued production. Sacred days, though, are feast days. Then, things which usually are forbidden are permitted or even required, though the upheaval is not necessarily as total as that following the death of a king. The values of the workday world are inverted, as Calois has pointed out. From an economic standpoint, the reserves accumulated during periods of work are squandered extravagantly at feast times. Here is a clear-cut distinction. We are not perhaps justified in asserting that religion is based on breaking the rules rather than on the rules themselves, but feast days depend on a readiness to make great inroads upon savings, and feast days are the crown of religious activity. Getting and spending are the two phases of this activity. Seen in this light, religion is like a dance where a movement backwards is followed by a spring forward. Man must combat his natural impulses to violence. This signifies an acceptance of violence at the deepest level, not an abrupt break with it. The feeling responsible for the rejection of violence is kept going in the background by this acceptance. Moreover, the urge to reject violence is so persistent that the swing of accepted violence 
always has a dizzying effect. Man is seized first with nausea, then as it passes by a heady vertigo, phases by the, of the paradoxical dance ordained by religious attitudes. By and large, then, in, spi- in spite of the complexity of the impulses concerned, the meaning is plain enough. Religion is the moving force behind the breaking of taboos. Now religion is founded on feelings of terror and awe. Indeed, it can hardly be thought of without them, and their existence causes some confusion. The recoil that inevitably follows the forward movement is constantly being presented as the essence of religion. This interpretation is obviously incomplete, and the misunderstanding could easily be cleared up, but for a misleading inner swing of feeling based on a deep inversion in harmony with the rational or practical world. In universal religions like Christianity or Buddhism, terror and nausea are a prelude to bursts of burning spiritual activity. Founded, as it is, on a reaffirmation of the primary taboos, this spiritual life yet implies a celebration that is the transgression, not the observation of the law. In Christianity and Buddhism, ecstasy begins where horror is sloughed off. A sense of union with the irresistible powers that bear all things before them is frequently more acute in these religions where the pangs of terror and terror and nausea are felt most deeply more than any other state of mind consciousness of the void about us throws us into exaltation this does not mean that we feel an emptiness in ourselves far from it but we pass beyond that into an awareness of the act of transgression